Jesus Christ. Amen. As we turn to John chapter 12 in our study uh, through the Gospel of John, we are reaching a turn, a kind of a critical turn, a juncture in the narrative of John, the story of John. And there's two kind of narratives, two stories that have, have emerged through the book of John up to this point. In one narrative, we see that Jesus is gaining in popularity. As we saw with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, it says many believed in him. Many believed in Jesus. John 12, 12 says that, and we'll see this next week, the, the, the crowd gathers to cheer on Jesus as he goes into Jerusalem. In John 12, 20, we see that even the Greeks, and we'll see this again in the coming weeks, we see that the Greeks were, in fact, intrigued by Jesus. The ministry of Jesus then is gaining traction, and vast numbers of people are accepting Jesus as Messiah and as King. There's another narrative, however, and in that narrative, Jesus is gaining popularity, yes, but he has become a problem. He has become a problem, at least to the religious leaders and to the aristocrats of the day. His growing popularity is a threat to the Jewish people into the nation in general. And this, re- this threat, as we've seen, is so real, such a real threat that Jesus must be killed. He must be put to death. He must be eliminated. Now, we know that these narratives, these stories, will co- converge eventually in one place. They will converge at the cross. That being said, it's not so much that one of these narratives will win the day. It's not so much that. It's rather that these narratives will collesh. They will, they will merge together to form one narrative, what Gary Burge calls the deeper story, the deeper story. And what is that deeper story? Well, if you have your Bibles open, you could look over at John twelve thirty two. This isn't the text we'll be at this morning, but just by way of introduction, John twelve thirty two, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What the crowds and the ruling class will see as humiliation and defeat, well, Jesus says is conquest by being lifted up from the earth, but being put on the cross, he will draw all men to himself. It was his death on the cross, the lifting up of his body, by which all men have access to him. His death is the means, it is the method by which we, anyone who would believe in him, can enter into a relationship with the God of the universe. And this is uniquely foreshadowed in this chapter, John chapter 12. In the weeks to come, we're going to see the foreshadowing of Jesus' kingship. We'll see that next week with the triumphal entry. We'll see the foreshadowing of the cross in this passage here that I just read from, the foreshadowing of his rejection, and the foreshadowing of coming judgment. All of this we'll see in John chapter 12. This morning in John 12, verses 1 through 11, we'll see Mary anoint the feet of Jesus as a foreshadow, a foreshadowing of Jesus' burial. And it's in that foreshadowing of his burial 
that we're given a picture of true devotion. A picture of true devotion. Question. When I use the word devotion, when you think about the word devotion, what comes to mind? What does it mean to be devoted to someone or to be devoted to something? What does that look like? Sometimes we talk about being devoted to a sports team, a product, a hobby, an activity, a cause. We can be devoted to lots of different things. A lot of people around here are devoted to the Dodgers. I am not one of those. I trust you'll forgive me. Some people are devoted to Cherry Coke. I can relate to that. You fill in the blank. Whatever you're devoted to, there are all kinds of things you might be devoted to. I, was, I had the opportunity to go out to that men's retreat just for a couple hours yesterday and uh, I met a man named Blake there who was on, the, on one of the ranges and we were shooting handguns and I got to know him a little bit and I asked him a question about what he does and what he spends his time doing and, and he had mentioned that he had spent five to six hundred hours there at the range. I thought, wow, there's a guy devoted to that activity. He was very devoted to shooting However, that's an, that's, a, that's an activity. Hopefully, we, we also talk about being devoted to each other, being devoted to one another. I was recalling Olivia Newton-John's words, but baby, can't you see there's nothing else for me to do? I'm what? Hopelessly devoted to you. Forgive me, it came to mind. <laughs> to be devoted to someone or to be devoted to something is to be loving or to be loyal to that thing or that person. Uh, to sacrificially care for one another, as like we like to say here at Rosedale, Rosedale Bible Church, is to be devoted to one another. It's what it means to sacrificially care for one another in various ways. It is surprising that for all that devotion is, and we think about it in terms of the Christian life, it, the word devotion is actually only found once in our Bible. That is, in the ESV translation, it's only found once. If you were to do an English word study, you'd find it one time in 1 Corinthians 7.35, and it's spoken of with regard to husbands and wives. Paul says we are to secure our undivided devotion to the Lord. Undivided devotion to the Lord. That word there in the Greek has the sense of constantly attendant or waiting on. Constantly attendant or waiting on. Hence, it says, undivided devotion in that verse. Biblical devotion, therefore, carries the idea of nearness, to be near someone or something. That's a, at least the biblical idea for devotion. You know the story of Mary, Mary and Martha. Now, this morning, we're going to see Mary and Martha, but you know the, maybe the more familiar story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 and 42. It goes like this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha, you remember, was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care for, that my sister has left me to serve alone? Let her then to help me. Tell her, excuse me, then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, 
you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Remember, Mary has chosen, it says, the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Well, what was that good portion in that passage? It was being near Jesus, right? It was being near Him. The idea of nearness is there. That is that devotion to Christ. And so we're given a picture of devotion, which is that picture of sitting at the Lord's feet to be near Him. This morning in our text, we'll see a similar picture of devotion. This time, however, Jesus or Mary, excuse me, will do more than sit at the feet of Jesus. She will anoint his feet, anoint his body for burial. As a foreshadowing, you might say, for his burial. And I believe the the story and the characters that are involved in this story can teach us something about true devotion. So that's my aim this morning, although the message is titled Anointed for His Burial, really, if you want to give it another title this morning, kind of a more applicational title to this message, it's something like, what does true devotion look like? So that's the question we're going to answer this morning. What does true devotion look like? At least from John chapter 12, 1 through 11. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 will be our text. John 12, starting at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here's the big idea in our text this morning. The anointing of Jesus for burial reveals seven features of true devotion. And so that's what I hope to give you this morning, seven features of true devotion. In verses 1 and 2, we see the setting of the story. Jesus is in Bethany six days before the Passover festival. And John reminds us that Bethany was that village where Lazarus was, was raised from the dead. If you were with us in the past couple weeks, you know that because we studied that from John chapter 11, this the setting ties chapter 11 and 12 together well. Again, the focus of chapter 11 was that seventh sign or that seventh miracle, maybe the most miraculous miracle of all, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. 
It was after that miracle that the religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus. So Jesus, he retreated into the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. This town is just northeast of Bethany, not far. And as we will discover in the weeks to come, that retreat would be short-lived. It was short-lived. It was this Passover, the one that's referred to here, that would be the hour of his death. And so as we transition from 12 and into 13, we're really getting into the last week of Jesus' life. We've already seen him twice go to Jerusalem in different, for different Passovers, but this Passover that we're talking about now is, is that Passover in which he would go to the cross and die. In verse 2, we discover that a dinner was being held for Jesus. The dinner was a, a special feast, likely to thank Jesus for the healing of Lazarus. It was a, it was a festival in his honor, a feast in his honor. And on not, only, not only him only, but there would have probably been, likely been, others there who had been healed by Jesus. For example, Matthew tells us, he records this miracle as well, or this event, excuse me, as well. He tells us that this dinner was held in the house of Simon the leper. You have to believe Simon would have been healed of his leprosy, for people would never have gathered in a house with a person with an active case of leprosy, especially Jews. So, you have others there that are likely healed by Jesus. Verse 2 says, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. We're not surprised that Martha is the one serving. You might say Martha was in her element. Every time we see this woman in Scripture, she appears to be up on her feet, serving, very active, and working and serving others every time we see her in Scripture. And so, here she is, a guest in Simon's house, but apparently that didn't stop her. She's still serving and preparing this meal, this event. In fact, I'd like to take Martha and from her draw out our first feature of true devotion. I'll say it this way, true devotion is industrious. True devotion is industrious. I don't know if if you often think of devotion this way, but I don't know why we shouldn't, uh, preparing a meal can be devotion. We don't have, to, we don't have time to revisit the, the whole story, but you recall the time Martha came to Jesus and expressed her grief over her brother Lazarus's death. We saw that just two weeks ago. We can imagine the joy that Martha would have had in that Jesus raised her, son, her brother from the dead, having been dead for four days. This meal given for Jesus, well, this was her way of honoring Jesus. She um, threw him a celebration. The text simply tells us Martha served, just two words. We can imagine what her service would have looked like and offered in, in response for what Jesus did. I believe it's an expression of true devotion. Certainly you've been to, maybe you've planned a, a birthday party for a loved one, maybe an anniversary. What is a funeral or a wedding? But these kind of events where we serve and we work and we labor to honor that person. We, we express our devotion by throwing them a party. I don't want to embarrass them, but I was privileged to be at Jean's 90th birthday party. I was thinking about Jean and... and there was one thing that was very clear about that birthday party. Everybody in the room loved Jean. They were absolutely devoted to Jean. 
The, the room just, it just spoke so much devotion for this man, so much love for this man. Likely the same kind of thing could be said of this gathering for Jesus that Martha put on and Martha was serving at. We think about this kind of industry. The Bible doesn't really use the, that, that word. What we're really talking about here is service, which is the word that really the Bible uses is service. You remember Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus promised that those who serve will eventually themselves be honored. In fact, he's, he promises it in chapter 12 here in verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the, on, the, the Father excuse me, will honor him. Service to others and service to Christ will not go unnoticed by Christ. I think Martha teaches us that devotion to Christ can be seen in the kitchen just as much as it can be seen in maybe the marketplace, you might say. Kent Hughes says, the transcending point is that loving service is always the characteristic of those who have had their hearts truly touched by Christ. I think we have an example of that here in Martha. Now, Martha's service does always seem to be in contrast to Mary, at least in the, as Martha and Mary are given to us, their stories in the Bible, and, and that's uh, also found here. And, and in, Martha is in contrast to the more maybe reflective or emotional characteristics that are found in her sister Mary. And so we're not surprised to read in verse 3, while Martha served, Mary, it says, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet, the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. If Martha can teach us that true devotion is industrious, Mary teaches us, number two, that true devotion is extravagant. True devotion is extravagant. The expensive ointment, it should be understood as perfume, that's really what it is. The quantity is large. A pound here is something like 11 ounces by today's measurements. That's about three quarters of an American pound. That might not seem like a, a lot, but keep in mind, this is a, a very costly perfume. It was made of pure nard, kind of herb or a root maybe, a very aromatic. We discover in verse 5 through Judas that this amount of perfume is worth 300 denarii. It doesn't make much sense to us, but a denarius was a day's wages, and so you have here about a year's worth of wages a year's salary of a, of a common laborer, that at least it was worth this ointment, this perfume. So think about it this way. If Think about minimum wage. Our minimum wage right now is $15.50. It's going to go up here, but $15.50 is minimum wage. $15.50 times eight hours is $124 a day. That's $620 a week and $32,240 a year. $32,000 kind of in our today's standards. Mary poured $32,000 on Jesus' feet. True devotion is extravagant, you might say. Devotion is hardly true 
when it meticulously counts the cost. True devotion gives its all, and its only regret is that it doesn't have more to give. Maybe you've heard the story, The Gift of the Magi. It's an old story. The story is about a, young, a poor young couple, married couple, who are in love. Each had a unique possession. The woman's hair was her glory, and the man had a gold watch that was given to him by his father. On the day before Christmas, the woman only had $1.87 to her name. And so she did what the right thing to do was she sold her hair. She had her hair cut and sold and made $20 from her hair. And she took that $20 and she purchased a chain for the gold watch. When the man came home that night and discovered that his bride had cut her hair, he was shocked, not because she lost any beauty, she was just as beautiful and radiant as always, but because he had sold his watch to purchase an expensive tortoiseshell comb for her hair. Each had given the other all he or she had to give. True devotion cannot think of any other way to give. Maybe you remember the time King David wanted to buy a field that belonged to a Jebusite. When the man discovered that David wanted the field, well, the man gladly offered it to David. He was the king. You can have the field. Do you remember what David's response was, though, in 1 Samuel 24, 24? No, he said. I will buy it from you for a price. And then he says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. You might even say true, true devotion is extravagant, but true devotion demands extravagance. At least it did in David's case. True devotion is industrious, it's extravagant, and number three, true devotion is humble. True devotion is humble. Notice that Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, the feet of Jesus. Now, we're familiar with the idea of somebody uh, anointing the head, like as of a king, anointing a head, anointing the head with oil. We've heard that, we've seen that. But to anoint the feet is something entirely different. To attend to the feet is the task of the lowliest of slaves. The action reveals Mary's self-perceived unworthiness. I mean, feet are dirty. They smell. We, we stay away from feet. Not Mary. She anoints his feet. And not only that, she wipes his feet with her hair. She used her hair as a towel. Now, this is odd, and it, it is just as odd in this context. In fact, maybe more odd. Otter? I don't know if otter is a word, but more odd in this context, then in our context, we would never see someone using their hair as a towel to do anything with it, let alone wipe a person's feet. But she does that here with Jesus. And so, she takes her hair down, which is, again, a very odd thing to do in this context. And you might even say it's a sign of loose morals. It's even an unethical thing to do, to let her hair down in public and then not only letting her hair down, but then she takes her hair and she wipes Jesus' feet. This is indecent. This is immoral, you might say. Now, of course, it's not moral, immoral according to God's law, but culturally, it was not accepted. 
If anointing the feet of Jesus teaches us that true devotion is humble, well, I think wiping his feet with her hair teaches us that true devotion is selfless. That'll be our fourth principle. True devotion is selfless. When two people love each other, well, they live in, in a world all of their own, do they not? They're in love. We, we wander through a crowd hand in hand. We never think or care what other people think of us. In fact, part of us even rejoices that other people look upon our love and see our love for one another. I had the privilege of taking my wife out to dinner on Friday night. It was our anniversary, 21 years married, and I was at the hostess desk at the, at the restaurant, and they had asked the question, are you here for a special event? No, we're just out for dinner. Who would do that? Yes, it's our anniversary, right? We're here to celebrate 21 years of marriage. I want everyone to know that this is my bride that I love. That's what devotion looks like, does it not? That's what it ought to look like. True devotion is selfless. On the other hand, sometimes, fortunately, we're, we're self-conscious about showing our love for Christ. We're, we're always thinking about what others might think of us. Well, what, what can Mary teach us about this? Mary teaches us that true devotion has little concern about what others think. Maybe even no concern. It doesn't care. Because it, it, we're devoted to our Savior. It doesn't matter what other people think about us, what they look on and see. Mary's actions challenge us, I know, forgive me, to let our hair down for Christ. I know that's cliche. But she does. Notice the last sentence of verse 3. The house was filled, it says, with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I love that sentence. It's a kind of detail that you know John was there. He had to be there. You can imagine him sitting in that house. I imagine in this time, there, there's not a lot of good things to smell. And to be in this home absolutely filled with the, this sweet aroma. Every corner of the house, just, it's so stark. I don't have the word for it. Just filling every sense of you, that, of what this woman did in anointing the feet of Jesus. The aroma filling, the rich aroma of the perfume filling every corner of the house. A fragrance that no doubt represented her total abandonment for Jesus. Her extravagant, humble, selfless devotion to Christ. Now, I don't want to fall into the trappings of the allegorical interpretation, but I can't help but think that this might be John's way of saying something that the Gospel of Mark notes. Mark also records this event. Mark 14, 9 says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. As the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, so would the world be filled with the memory of of Mary's devotion to Christ. 
Therefore, Martha teaches us that true devotion is industrious. Mary teaches us that true devotion is extravagant, it's humble, and it's selfless. There are other characters in the story. How about Judas? Can Judas, Judas, excuse me, teach us anything about true devotion? Let's find out. Look at verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. These verses give us a number of things. We learn a number of things about Judas from these verses. Of course, we know that in just a few days from this event recorded here in John 12, Judas will betray Jesus, and John tells us as much in verse 4. We also discover here that Judas didn't see Mary's actions as affection. She saw them, he saw them as excess. That's how he saw this act of anointing Jesus' feet. So utilitarianism raises its ugly head and declares, well, why was this perfume not sold and the proceeds given to the poor? How often do we pit utilitarianism, pit pragmatism, what's practical or what's sensible, against extravagance? <laughs> against unqualified devotion. It's easy for us to pit a concern for the poor against aesthetics. And not just a concern for the poor, but really any social concern or any need. You pit these two against each other. I was reading and thinking about this, this reality this week. Again, the, re- the reality or the tendency we have to see greater value or significance in practical matters over impractical matters. I mean, what's practical about pouring $32,000 on the feet of Jesus? It's not very practical. Thinking about how we do that often, we pit those two against each other. And I was thinking then about the construction of the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle. The tabernacle was that great tent, that big tent that Israel was instructed to construct where they would worship our Lord. They would worship Yahweh. The tent had two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. And the instructions for that building that tabernacle are in Exodus 26 and Exodus 36. Exodus 26.1 says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim. Those are, that's a, that's a one of the angels, an angel, word for angel. Cherubim skillfully worked into them, into the the curtains. It seems simple. Here's what I want you to know. First off, there are four different Hebrew words used for linen in the Bible, Hebrew language. Each word indicates a different grade or quality of linen. Well, can you guess what kind of quality or which word was used in Exodus 26.1? Probably the, the highest grade linen, right? Well, you'd be right. The word in Exodus 26.1 is the highest grade for linen. For some contrast, in the book of Jeremiah, you might recall this, God had told Jeremiah to bury in the ground his linen belt. Well, that's not the word that's used here. 
a different word that's used here. You don't bury this kind of linen. This is the kind of linen that is used by royalty. It's used by kings. That's this kind of linen. Something that made this linen more expensive was that it was bleached numerous times, and so this linen was pure white, stark white, the whitest possible thing you could see in the known world at that time. It was this very expensive, bright white linen that was finely twisted with the highest grade of flax thread. This made up the interior walls of the tabernacle. Exodus 26.1 also says that these linen curtains were to have cherubim, again angels, embroidered into them with blue, purple, and scarlet dyes. Now, these words in the Hebrew, they, they're translated for us as colors, but they're really the, the names of the different kinds of dyes in the Hebrew. And these are, this is a list that goes from the most expensive kind of dyes to the least expensive kind of dyes. The blue dye was incredibly expensive. It was made from snails found in the Mediterranean Sea. The third dye was made from an insect that lived on oak trees. And these dyes were used to dye the wool yarn, which would then be woven or embroidered into these pure white linen sheets. If you can imagine standing inside this tent, surrounded, it was 45 feet long by 15 feet wide, surrounded by the most stunning pure white curtains, walls, you'd ever seen, and woven into those pure white linen sheets, the most elaborate portraits of angels in the brightest, most vibrant colors in the entire world at that time. There's no way to, to get a more a vibrant color. And all of this inside God's sanctuary, His tabernacle. Now, I don't know what he would have said, but imagine what Judas would have thought of that. What would have been his response? Well, what overabundance? What excess? Don't you, can't you see our people are starving? We have no food. You realize we could take all of that, we could go barter with the next village, we could go sell it somewhere, and we could get leeks, whatever they ate back then. We could, we could get food, but instead we're dying here in the wilderness. And, and this? Curtains? I don't know what Judas would have said. Maybe something like that. It seems in character based on this text. Here's what we tend to do, most of us American pragmatic people that we are. We downplay expression over what works. We prefer function over form. How something works over how something looks. And I think this lies behind Judas's words. Why wasn't the ointment, the ointment sold, the perfume sold, and the proceeds given to the poor? Judas sees no value in the expression of true devotion that's offered by Mary. Like an aroma that would soon fade away and become vacuous, her actions were empty-headed. Dare I say, her actions are wasteful. Of course, on the other hand, we shouldn't overplay. We shouldn't overplay expression. We shouldn't prioritize the way things look, the way things feel, the way they make us feel 
our personal expression. We shouldn't overplay those things over function as well. That would be to fall off the other side of the horse. As beautiful as the curtains were in the tabernacle, they did serve a function. It wasn't just all aesthetics. Linen was very breathable. It was a good material for that hot climate. And it was very durable. In fact, the, the mummies that are wrapped in linen, the same kind of high-grade linen, we see that linen has survived even today, thousands of years later. It's not as pure white as it once was, but it's very durable, and it's lasted for thousands of years. So it was a good kind of material to use in that day. So it did have a function. It did serve a function. What Mary's action teaches us is that true devotion, worship, is really what we're talking about, for our Lord is no act of mere form or function. When Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, when she pours $35,000 upon his feet, it's neither an act of excess nor an empty-headed action. It's an expression, an aesthetic, that fits perfectly with its function. The practical and the impractical, the pragmatic and the aesthetic, the form and the function, they find their perfect balance in Mary's actions. I don't know if you've ever seen a piece of architecture, maybe, that it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And in its beauty, it's perfectly married with function. I would say this building is not one of those. It is a beautiful building, but there are places you sit where you can't see because of the, the way that they designed the, the columns. It doesn't work that well. It's beautiful, but functionally, it doesn't offer us a lot of advantages sometimes. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe you've seen a chair, a piece of furniture that's beautiful. It's so elegantly made, and you love the way it looks. And you sit in it, and you're like, yes! This is so comfortable. I love looking at it and I love sitting in it. Different for all of us. I, maybe an Ames chair for me, that, that would be that. It looks wonderful and it's perfectly comfortable. It's a, it marries form and function. Maybe a, an instrument. Maybe you're a musician. It plays perfectly and yet it looks perfectly. It looks perfect. Maybe a beautiful guitar or a brass instrument, something that, that it just marries form and function perfectly. I don't know how to boil all this down into a principle to give you, but I'm going to say it this way. True devotion, I don't know, what is this our fifth number? Our fifth thing? Fifth principle? Thank you. True devotion is balanced. Let's say it that way. True devotion is balanced. And what I mean by that is that true devotion is our own balanced expression of Christ's worth. In Mary's life, that was $35,000 at the feet of Jesus. That's what it looked like for her. It, it was a perfect act of devotion. It was nothing wasteful in what she did. It was an expression of all she believed and all of her thankfulness towards Christ. My bet is that if she had another jar, she would have done the same thing. Again, the only regret that true devotion has, has is that it doesn't have any more to give. 
Whatever I have, I'll give it to you, Lord. So she pours it out on his feet. I have no idea what that kind of devotion looks like in your life. I don't know. I can't answer that question. That's why it's our own balanced expression. It might be a $5 worth of an ointment. I don't know. Because that's all you have. There's no way to answer that. It's, it's, that's a heart question for you, for us, for me. Thankfully, I don't have to measure my true devotion by yours, and you don't have to measure your true devotion by mine. We don't have to measure them by the same standard. It's, it's in your heart, your affections for Christ. And so we don't have to go pour out $35,000 perfume on, on the feet of Jesus or, any, or the poor or anyone else. We don't have to do that exactly. But what does that look like in your life? What is your own expression of true devotion? Each of us must find an expression of true devotion that comes from our own time, talents, and treasures, as it's said. It's a simple way of saying it. Our own time, our own treasures, our own talents. Is it a day? Is it a week? Is it a month? Is it a life? And what does a missionary do? A missionary gives his life over to that kind of service. Do I have to measure my service by that? No. Because it's a heart question about what, what I, how much I value Christ and with my own time and talents and treasures, what I'm going to give Christ. And so it looks different for all of us. We all have different gifts. We all have different abilities. It could be a skill. It could be amount of time. It could be generosity. It could be money. I don't know what it is. You know what it is. I trust God's Spirit is at work in your heart, convicting you of what that is, as it has in mine, as He has in mine. Now, verse 6, moving on, we discover something is lurking behind Judas's criticism. As it turns out, Judas doesn't actually care for the poor at all. Go figure. Rather, being the treasurer, we learn, he was able to help himself to the money, He had an opportunity in his position to pilfer the offerings, to steal from the money bag. 1 Timothy 6.10 is very clear. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, this craving for money, that some have wandered away from the faith, it says, and pierced themselves with many pangs. I think Judas is probably the personification of that verse. He fits it more than anyone else ever could or ever will. John MacArthur said, Judas is the greatest example of missed opportunity in history. He lived day in and day out with Jesus Christ, God incarnate, for three years. Yet in the end, Judas rejected him, betrayed him, was overcome by guilt, committed suicide, and went to his own place. That is, he went to hell in its most potent form, he says, end quote. Now, thankfully, Jesus will not let Judas's criticism go unanswered, and so Jesus responds in verses 7 and 8. Look at that. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for the poor you always have with you, 
but you do not always have me. It's finally here in verse 7 that we discover what John is foreshadowing for us in this text. He's foreshadowing the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, excuse me, the death and burial of Christ. When Jesus says of Mary that she may, it's it's somewhat hard to understand here, this this phrase does seem a little awkward, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. I don't think he's saying that Mary knew that that Jesus was going to die and that her action was, from her perspective, an anointing for burial. I don't think she thought about it that way. This was just an act of true devotion on her part. She didn't realize what she was doing. At least that's how I take this. And so I think Mary's action here of anointing the feet of Jesus is something like Caiaphas's action, his unwitting prophecy. You remember that from a couple weeks ago. Remember, Caiaphas applied his own logic and suggested to the Sanhedrin that it's better that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He said that using the logic from his situation, but he was actually making a prophecy at the same time. Speaking from his office, he made a prophecy. Well, I think the same kind of thing is happening here. Mary poured out the perfume on Jesus as an expression of true devotion, yes, But she was unwittingly, unknowingly, you might say, anointing Jesus for his burial. We have a sixth feature of true devotion in verse 8, and it's this. True devotion is foremost. True devotion is foremost. Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you'll not always have me. Opportunity is to be seized. It's to be seized while it is there. Dead Poets Society has given us that most memorable line in American cinema, you know it, carpe diem, seize the day. Well, Jesus gives us a greater truth. What I'll say is carpe deo, seize the Lord. That's mine. Carpe deo, seize the Lord. The opportunity is here. It's today. Like the illumination of a dying planet, our opportunity for devotion to the Lord wanes. The day is short. In this way, Mary has given us a thrilling example. By the end of the week, Jesus would be crucified. This is her last, she doesn't know that, but this is her last opportunity to express such devotion to Christ. He'll be gone in a week. We'll be gone in a week. Who knows? It must be capitalized on our opportunity to express love and affection for our Savior. Now, to be clear, we shouldn't set giving to the poor over against devotion to Jesus. That'd be a wrong kind of way to take this. That's to miss the point. The point is simply that devotion to Christ is foremost. And in this context, as ambassadors for Christ, well, Devotion to Christ, in fact, may look like giving to the poor. It could be an act of devotion, for sure. Paul said in Galatians 2.10 that he was eager to remember the poor. In Romans 15.26, Paul tells the churches in Macedonia and in Cai, they were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. And so, it might just be the case that your act of true devotion your balanced act, to pull another point back in, of true devotion, 
is giving to the poor. It, it might be the case that this church's act of true devotion might be to pour out our perfume upon the poor, you might say, in Jesus' name, of course. I'm not sure. I don't know what that looks like in your life. Now, as our text ends, we have superficial people and scheming leaders in verses 9 through 11. Look at that, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Well, what can we learn from these verses? I'm going to say it this way. True devotion, this is our last principle, the seventh principle. True devotion is ultimate. True devotion is ultimate. No one is neutral concerning Jesus Christ. Recall what Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three: Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Although the crowd appears to be gathered with him, we know they're lukewarm. We know the end of the story. We know the way they'll go. In John 12, 13, next week we'll see this. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But yet, in John 19, what do they say? John 19, 15 says, the crowds cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. In a week, they turn. The crowds were thrill seekers. They were fascinated that he raised Lazarus from the dead. They wanted to meet him. This fascination, of course, was just superficial. They were lukewarm. And if the crowds were stirred by Jesus, well, the religious leaders, they were disturbed by Jesus. And we see here that their evil has grown. Not only have they decided to kill Jesus, but now they must kill Lazarus. Leon Morris comments, but one was not enough. Now it had to be two. Thus does evil grow. We see that here. John MacArthur again, whether loving and serving him like Mary and Martha, being indifferent and vacillating toward him like the crowd, or hating and opposing him like Judas and the chief priests, everyone takes a stand somewhere. What that stand is determines each person's eternal destiny. Since, Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no, uh, no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. End quote. Therefore, true devotion is industrious, it's extravagant, it's humble, it's selfless, it's balanced, it's foremost, and finally, maybe most importantly, true devotion is ultimate. It is ultimate. Now, as I was thinking about how to close and bring this sermon to a close, bring the subject of true devotion to a close, I was, I was drawn back to that story of Abraham and Isaac thinking about Abraham's devotion to Yahweh. You remember God commanded Abraham to offer his son Isaac as an offering. Which, of course, meant killing him. And not only that, but burning him on the altar. That's what that looked like. 
Genesis 22, verses 3 through 5. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up, lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and do what? Worship, he says, and come again to you. What was it that Abraham called worship? Abraham had such devotion that he was able to see beyond the cost, even the cost of his own son, to worship his God. I'm not sure there's a greater picture of devotion to the Lord than that. I don't want to take anything away from Mary's act, but I guess you'd be willing to give up any possession over, your, over a family member, over your son. If, if somebody said, take, you know, $35,000, I'm not even thinking about that. You're going to hand that over for the life of your son. And not only that, not any son, but in Abraham's case, a century of infertility. He was 100 years old when he was born. Sarah was 90. 90 years, 100 years of infertility. And, Jesus, and God says, Yahweh says to Abraham, take your son's life in devotion to me. <laughs> How often do I shy away from devotion because it might cost me some time or money? How removed is that from Abraham, a man who is willing to plunge a knife into his son as an act of true devotion? Here's what's true about true devotion. True devotion sees beyond the immediate pain and is willing to pay the price. And it's more than willing. Church, it's eager to pay the price. Maybe that's the heart question. Why am I not eager? Okay, I'm willing, but why am I not eager to pay the price? Martha served eagerly. Mary poured eagerly. Abraham, he didn't kill, but he killed eagerly. You remember it says he rose early in the morning. We oftentimes highlight that for good reason. Abraham didn't, he didn't delay. He rose early and went to, to, to prepare that offering for Yahweh. That's profound. And so as we close, what's standing in your way? Too much work? Is it too much work? That act of devotion? Does it cost too much money? Is it too impractical? How can you emulate Mary's total abandonment for Jesus Christ? How can we emulate 
her total devotion? That's the question. Amen?